This episode of Lord Have Mercy is brought to you by Noelle Hair Serum, managing the many textures of you, one natural drop at a time. From wet to dry and curly to straight, Noelle offers hair lovers a way to transition effortlessly between styles. It greatly reduces your blow drying, flat ironing, and curling time with volume control that lasts. Find out more at noellehair.com. That's N-U-E-L-E hair.com. You are listening to Lord Have Mercy, a podcast about God, sex, and the Bible. I'm your host, Crystal Cheatham, and today I'll be interviewing the great and wonderful Deborah Jian Lee, author of Rescuing Jesus, How People of Color, Women, and Queer Christians Are Reclaiming Evangelicalism. There was something about spirituality that was attractive, that um, was kind of calling me. I, my friends were Muslim, they were Mormon, they were Presbyterian and Catholic and Baha'i and Hindu. And, um, you know, my grandmother's Buddhist. And so I had this early exposure to, um, I would say an early superficial exposure to the fact that other people had faith traditions. And I wanted to know like why my family didn't have a faith tradition. And, Mm um, eventually I found this Chinese immigrant church. Mm-hmm. And this was really significant to my journey because, you know, like I said, it was this white suburb and I was dealing with a lot of ostracism and racism and just internal self-loathing because mm-hmm. of my identity as a Chinese American. Um, at You know, there were a lot of like Ching Chong jokes. Um, it's fucked up, but it's really prevalent for that time in our history where that was just common to just be um, totally culturally common. inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just a lot of questions like, just this, like the microaggressions, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where are you from? Where are you really from? Blah, blah, blah. But then there was also like aggression, aggression, where I was actually um, beat up, um, you know, hit in the stomach so hard and t- to the point where I couldn't breathe and was just thrown on the pavement of my um, playground in junior high and called a chink. And like, that was a, that was like a really defining moment. And I never told anyone about it. I never Mm. reported it. I was just so ashamed. And I thought that if I told people, they would say, yeah, you did deserve that. That's what you are, you know, like, like, or they wouldn't do anything. Or if I told my parents, they wouldn't have any power to, to talk to the principal or teachers at school. I just, I kept it to myself. And it was, just this shame that I carried. Um, And so when I found this Chinese immigrant church, it was like a place where I was finally with my people, you know, it was like these, I was in the youth group. So it was all these other kids who are my age, who are code switching between their white suburban schools and their Chinese homes. And like we understood each other in that way. And then at the same time, in that context, they told me about um, Jesus. They told me, they taught me about the gospels. And it was this total revelation to me that there was this faith that told me that I belonged just as I was. And it really, it was, it was really beautiful. And I became a Christian. And it was so pure, right? Like this, like, just like this open door that you could walk through. And, you know, these, um, parameters that you could that you could like use to to steady the path that you are walking right 
Yeah. Just like, I mean, I remember just early Christianity for myself because I didn't really come to Christ until um, I was in high school. And, you know, not that my family wasn't fundamentalist, it was just I hadn't really taken the time to digest it for myself. And when I found the the way to walk through it, it was just like, oh, my God, this is this is amazing. This is a great lens to view the world through because it's confusing otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, like yourself, I did go through that, like, you know, <laughs> seeing through the shit and just, you know, feeling heartbroken and I think that's what's so hard is because the beginning is so beautiful (laughs) and it's just like I remember like standing in the baptismal tub on the stage of my church and looking out and everyone was just beaming and I was beaming and I was like my new life is beginning right now (laughs) and then I got to college and I joined like the evangelical movement like the capital E evangelical movement and it was just such I was just plunged into the culture wars because mm-hmm. I was there during Bush v. Gore. Um, and I heard people saying um, just so many things that I, I, I couldn't stand by. And mm-hmm. and there was just so much casual racism in the community that um, and casual sexism, casual homophobia. Mm-hmm. It was all just a part of the culture. Absolutely. And then if you didn't vote a certain way, the blood of unborn babies was on your hands. <laughs> you know, it was r- black and white, right and wrong. There was no room to ask questions um, or to even just be a different kind of Christian. Yeah, and so that point where like the Disney sugar coating starts to melt off is the end of your introduction. And I just want to read a quote because I think it's really poignant uh, um, to where... I think many people identify with this space right now. And by many people, I'm just talking about, you know, millennials as a whole. You know, I run into people all the time um, who have these faith questions and they just don't know like which, which church to put themselves at or how to access faith resources, right? Um, anyway, let me quit blabbering. It's um, page 14. You say, gradually, I stopped believing key evangelical theological tenets. I no longer accepted biblical inerrancy, which is the belief that the Bible is without error. And the idea that one could find salvation only through Christianity contradicted the heart of the God I knew. I cast off evangelicalism to preserve my own faith. The decision came slowly and without a lot of deliberation, but it ultimately granted me some of the most profound spiritual freedom I have ever felt. By allowing myself to step outside of the boundaries of evangelicalism allowed me, allowed my faith to really grow and it allowed me to love the people around me so much better. I was no longer seeing people through the lens of conversion. Is this someone that I need to like befriend and then right. like, slowly like salesman convert? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's it changed and and then I, I, that by that gave me the space to just love people and care for my friends and be cared for and be loved in a way that didn't have an agenda. Mm-hmm. Like the only agenda was love. Yeah. And I think experiencing that kind of love um, and placing myself in a position where I um, was not, I didn't see myself as the Messiah for another person's life, but right. instead saw myself as, you know, a fellow sojourner, a fellow, um, uh, you know, person walking through life, asking questions, looking for answers, 
um, seeking love, it just opened up my world in really profound ways. Yeah, I think I went through the same thing. And what I discovered was I, I was no longer looking at people um, through their sins, you know, quote unquote sins, as in, you know, you're a fornicator, and you drink and you smoke. And these are, these are the cardinal sins of Christianity. And, you know, that's, that's how I'm going to interact with you as, you know, automatically I am on a pedestal and you're down there and the only way that we can actually connect one-on-one is if like you drop these sins quote-unquote sins and rise to my level right it's Mm -hmm. just (laughs) it taught me how to love and it also opened my eyes to the real injustices that exist in our society and that exist in our church that need to be called into the light yeah and changed and I think I think that is, I'm seeing among younger evangelicals, um, progressive, millennial, evangelicals, ex-evangelicals, Christians, not spiritual, but not religious people are saying, okay, let's not like, let's not obsess over, you know, getting my friend to stop smoking. (laughs) Let's, let's look at the bigger picture. Let's look at the structural and systemic injustices that are leading to Black lives being, mm. you know, shot in the street. It's leading to women being abused in relationships. That's leading to the heartbreaking rate of suicide among transgender people. Um, the psychological harm that the that certain theology has on LGBT people. Let's look at racial hate crimes and um, harassment that our brothers and sisters of color face all the time. Um, It's really interesting to hear this language of social justice wrapped into a conversation about religion and spirituality, because it never is so. And I have to say that by the time I finished reading your book, I wanted more, you know, I was just like, well, this isn't enough, you know, like, where's, where's the rest of the book? Where's the rest of the story? Um, and I think in your book, you tell stories of women and men who, who are changing the face of the makeup of religion in America. And um, it's very well organized in the way that you continue to keep touching on each of their stories. And I'm wondering, do you have a favorite part of the book or a favorite one of those stories that really stands out the most to you? So much of it. Yeah. Um, so just a quick background for listeners who don't know, um, in at college on cal- college campuses, Christian college campuses across the country, there are many schools that have anti-queer policies. So you could get expelled, you could lose your scholarship, you could be um, placed in reparative therapy. Um, so these aren't safe spaces for LGBTQ people. So a lot of um, students form these underground groups where they meet and minister to one another and create a safe space. They, you know, Will and Tasha are the two main characters or the main people that I write about because they founded the Bioqueer Underground. And they created the safe space where students could come and just be themselves and love each other. And these were students who had all had suicidal ideation. I think that's what stunned me the most was that Um, And what stunned Will and Tasha the most was that every single one of them had contemplated suicide. Um, And they created a space where people could heal and learn about their dignity and their self-worth and that God loved them and that um, they were worthy. Um, 
and in that process, just over, you know, the year and a half that they um, had been around when I met them, all of those students um, found themselves and they learned to love themselves and they learned to be the, um, to be the body of Christ. And I think that I remember like I was following them around when they were, they came out when I was, when I I visited them in at the end of the school year and they were going to come out, um, by publishing a yearbook with their names and faces. Um, and I remember following around Will and Tasha and Will was just like this ball of anxiety the entire time. Like it looked like he was going to shatter because he was just so, um, so afraid of, of doing this very brave thing. And, you know, he got a lot of criticism and, you know, an administrator came up to him and told him he had to stop and he immediately just felt guilty. Um, and then he realized he was being made to feel guilty for who he was. And he realized that that wasn't from God, that was from Christian culture. And then at the end of all this, there's this big party where people are celebrating. And I see Will um, addressing the crowd. And he was like this completely different person. He was just smiling. He was so confident. He was clearly their leader. People in the crowd had crushes on him. People admired him. He was just this whole person. Um, Whereas before he was just, he was, when he was in on campus in this hostile environment, he felt so defined by how other people saw him as problematic. Um, And here he was celebrated and just his whole self. And it was so beautiful and life affirming. Um, And I saw that through his leadership um, and through Tasha's leadership, they were able to make that space for other people who felt like their whole lives were defined by what was wrong with them or what people said was wrong with them. And here they were in a space where um, they could see their full beauty and celebrate that. Snaps to that. That's such a good story. (laughs) (laughs) It's really heartwarming um, because unfortunately many LGBT Christians or people of faith don't come to that. Um, And in fact, the suicidal, the feelings of suicide, of of wanting to hurt yourself, of wanting to get out of your body, you know, sometimes they win. And, and uh, I think that's why books like yours and podcasts like this are so important. Um, do you still identify as an evangel- evangelical evangelist? <laughs> do no, still- I don't. <laughs> okay. I don't. Um, I, yeah, I walked away from that years ago. And then I stopped going to church. And then just, how do I, I don't know what to call myself sometimes. I, I, I go back and forth, like in some ways, like that moment with the Biola Queer Underground um, made me realize like how much Christianity has shaped me and how much I am a Christian. I've kind of slipped on the Christian label. I've slipped it on and off because I'm I'm unsure. And I think a lot of my insecurity comes from the conservative definition of what it means to be a Christian. Mm. And in a way, I've allowed other people to define my faith um, because they told me that I, I disqualified from Christianity. And I think be reporting this book and um, interviewing hundreds of people, um, interviewing people like Will and Tasha has reminded me that I'm not disqualified from the faith. And, um, 
And at the same time, I feel like in the process um, on my journey, I've also, my faith has grown beyond the definitions of Christianity. And, um, and yeah, I, there's a lot of just my own, the spiritual heritage of my family that I'm reconnecting with. Um, and I definitely know that in a lot of Christian circles, that would be, that would be condemned, but I'm okay with, <laughs> I'm okay with myself and mm-hmm. I'm okay. I feel like my faith is on the right path. And in the context of kind of the evangelical world and the culture wars, I felt like my faith was suffocating and that it would have probably um, died if I stayed in that, wow. in that toxic community. No, you look really happy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. I think for me, when I, when I started going back to church, I had to, you know, kind of uh, sort out the different elements of what church is and pick like the one thing that I really wanted, you know, because, um, I came from Adventism and, um, I had to decide whether the Sabbath was something that I really needed, you know, because Adventist churches are just so anti-gay and they are still uh, very segregated and just, you know, trying to figure out where I belonged. And I discovered that music was really something that I could not live without is I, I, you know, bend for um, group singing. I love it so goddamn much. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I wonder if there's something like that, that like, that you absolutely need um, in your, in your worship space. The funny thing is, I actually probably spend like more time in Christian community mm. than I did but when I was an evangelical in the evangelical world because I report on it and because yeah. I'm constantly I'm being invited to speak at churches mm-hmm. and at Christian conferences um, and so I get a lot of that and and I, I yeah group singing is amazing <laughs> it's it feeds my soul um, um, I think prayer and meditation mm-hmm. is really important it's a really important part of my life and my spirituality. And I've never stopped doing that. You know, there's so much about um, like Christian rituals that I never stopped doing just because I stopped going to the building mm-hmm. um, doesn't mean I stopped feeding my faith. Mm. Um, and so um, prayer, meditation, mindfulness, reading poetry and meditative guides from different faith traditions and the Christian faith tradition um, those are all really nourishing to my soul. Hmm. Um, you talked a bit about your career. What, what's, what's happening next for you now that the book's out? Uh, there's a lot of, uh, yeah. So the paperback came out and mm-hmm. which is like, it's big success, right? Because if they're able to like reprint it to begin with is like huge. And so you've had yeah. a hard cover and now a soft cover, which means like you're winning in the publishing game. <laughs> It definitely feels good, and I'm really happy that um, that people are engaging in it, and it's actually changing their communities. Um, so, one quick plug, like something that was like ongoing, um, something that started this summer that's ongoing is this thing called One Book One Church. Mm-hmm. Um, I launched it with a pastor. Um, her name is Erin James Brown, and she's a pastor at Urban Village Church in Chicago. Um, and we put on this thing called One Book, One Church that ha- is basically a national book club. And it's inviting small groups, church communities, um, book clubs across the nation to read Rescuing Jesus um, with a specific discussion guide that we created. It's on my website. Cool. And it's a really difficult discussion guide. It really 
um, brings churches from all different backgrounds um, into this conversation about what intersectional social justice actually looks like. And intersectionality, I know, is like a big word that isn't fun to put. Um, it's in. catching on. Is it catching on? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, you say it, and it just like it, it just like falls dead on the ground. People are like, I stopped listening to you. <laughs> it's um, but it basically means that you know, um, we when we pursue justice, we pursue justice for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. That you know, people, human beings are complex, and we live at the intersection of many different identities. We mm-hmm. could be LGBT. And a person of color, we could be a woman of color, we could be a person with a disability and um, queer and, you know, that those intersections bring about all the, like, it, it, it escalates um, or it compounds our oppression mm. and that needs to be addressed in a holistic way. And so One Book, One Church is a, basically a discussion guide um, for book clubs across the country. And we've had about 60, over 60 congregations engage, over a thousand people Cheers. Um, ha- are, are reading the book. And I'm hearing back from churches that are actually taking action, like mm-hmm. one church that's like really LGBT affirming, but mostly white. They're like, man, we don't know how to talk about um, race. And mm-hmm. so we need to talk about what it means to be white, what white privilege is and ways that we can engage in our community to show up for racial justice. Um other communities, they're like, basically, they're bringing different church communities together. Like one church is like, very good at racial justice. Another church is very good at LGBT inclusion. Another church is like, very good at like, promoting women and leadership. Cheers, that's what's up. Um, And they're bringing like those communities together to talk about um, the stories and the history that I write about in Rescuing Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to, that's a, that's a really big project that I want to invite your listeners to engage in. Um, I just had a Skype chat with a one small group this week, and they're going to be reaching out to their, to community, their community and um, working on, I I, I probably shouldn't say everything because they're still, it's still in in the works, but they're working on some really um, big, exciting things to, um, to be of service in their community. Um, And that's encouraging. But as your question was like career stuff, unfortunately, like, I can't say anything because like the ink is still drying, okay. but there's like a few huge projects in the works that well, I'm very excited about. Where can people see you next? Right. Or how, the, how can they engage with you? Which is, I think, I don't know. It's great talking to you and it was great meeting you at GCN. So um, it's important. Yeah. I mean, they can follow me on Twitter at Deborah Jian Lee. Um, that's D E B O R A H J I A N L E E. Um, and if you know my name, you can find me anywhere on the internet because that's my website, DebraJanley.com. That's my Facebook. And then um, the Rescuing Jesus podcast is going to be launching in 2017. And basically, um, I totally hear you. The book is awesome. It's a great place to start, but there are so many more conversations mm-hmm. that need to be had. And so I'm going to be continuing the conversation in my podcast. I'm going to talk about like how social justice um, faith leaders are actually doing this work. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I'm looking for models, people who are, um, you know, engaging their entire congregation in anti-racist training, um, in, you know, congreg- pastors who are leading, um, very difficult discussions about, um, 
LGBT inclusion um, and women in leadership. And um, I don't think these are easy conversations, which is why we need to do them together and mm-hmm. we need to learn from the best um, and find ways that, um, find strategies that really work for our individual communities. And so I'm hoping to um, bring that that information and, and those inspirational stories to people in the Rescuing Jesus podcast. So speaking with Deborah, we talked a bit about sin and the systems of power that are oppressive. But what exactly is sin? Where does spirituality actually meet the cogs of these systems of oppression? And by definition, what the hell is sin? I sat down with Rev Sex, aka Alba, to discuss just that. Because what I really didn't like about the idea of sin was that it was like this very tangible with deeds, um, black and white idea of right and wrong and that's what really bugs me because I think that if I am connected to God or my purpose you know which is also connected to God then you know there's reasons why you may do something that is otherwise considered a sin you know and I just don't think that deeds cause sin well I think that what what is really important is that you can't have an analysis of something, um, particularly something as abstract and also tangible as sin without a power analysis. Right. And so thinking about some of the um, typical questions, right. If a man steals a loaf of bread, is it a sin? Exactly. Well, what if he's hungry? What if his kids are hungry? Well, what if somebody stole all his money and he's stealing the bread from the company that stole all his... Like, you know, there's Mm -hmm. a zillion... What if the bread was almost spoiled and thrown away in the garbage? Is Wells Fargo, like, the way they stole money from people a sin when you think of all the bank tellers who were just trying to meet their quota? Like, it was wrong, but I don't know. Yeah. So I think it's super complicated, right? So I think that's why power analysis is always super important. So when we talk about like sin as something that is immoral, that goes against God's divine law, Uh I think that that's a, that is problematic inherently, right? Because somebody has to decide what God thinks. Yeah. And somebody has to decide what's going to happen if you sin against God and it's not as simple as like the Bible says so because the Bible says a whole lot of things about a whole lot of different groups of people who had really different rules and I think it's really hard to I think doing that without a power analysis of like who benefits right so to be like all stealing is wrong period end of subject but if I'm saying I'm stealing bread from the dumpster behind the grocery store because they threw it out because it was stale and I'm hungry and they have billions and billions of dollars of profit at the at the end of the year. Like that just isn't that clean cut. So there has to always be, a, in my opinion, there is no religion or religious mandate or religious law without a power analysis. Because if you aren't paying attention to who's benefiting and who's getting screwed over, then there's something there that you're missing that's really important about God, especially if we, I at least believe in a God who prioritizes those on the margin and those who are oppressed. Yeah, I really want to think about that. 
in simpler terms because you're using a lot of big words. Like what? <laughs> Systems of the oppressed, power analysis. <laughs> I mean, power analysis, really? The analysis of power and who has it? I'm not saying I didn't understand it. I'm saying it's just going to take me a bit longer to process it. All right, well, let's um, process it. I just, so... <sighs> Last summer, um, I made a friend who was um, just, like, living on the, like on the edge of the poverty line and she was working as a barista you know and riding her bike everywhere and you know living off of like what little she could um and a couple of things had happened in her life for her to be in that space right but she was still a very positive person and a very smart person um and i remember one time we were joking around about something and she was like she was like yeah i steal from whole foods all, all the time you know like as you know um someone who appears white no one is ever going to think twice about you know what i'm doing so yeah i go in there and i steal food and i just and she said it in a way where she didn't want me to she was wondering if i was judging her but here we are we are bonding and you know so she was being vulnerable and in my heart of hearts you know in that moment not that i'm condoning stealing from anyone but i was like I think you're doing what's right for you right now, you know? Like it's it really sucks um to not be able to get food that is to not be able to get food number 1, but number 2 not be able to get food that is actually going to help your body, you know? And at the moment whole, if if she kind of lived in a, fu- a food desert, whole food was whole foods was the nearest place and that's just, you know, where it went down. So Well, hello, Thanksgiving. It is the giving season and our Bible app is seeking funders and writers for Bible light and Bible free meditations. Find out more at crystalcheatum.com. And while you're there, check out the donation giveaways. Giving just $10 gets you a free album download. By donating $100, you can receive a book signed by Deborah Jian Lee. Find out more at crystalcheatum.com. Well, can we talk about original sin? Sure. Okay, because the what I care most about is original sin. And I think what happens a lot, at least in the tradition that I come from, is that we talked a whole lot about individual sin, but not a whole lot about collective sin. And so original sin was this really interesting thing, right? Because when the Bible is talking about in Romans, all have like, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There was a long time in which I was like, no, that's total bullshit. Like that whole sin thing. is just not real. The original sin thing is not real. Um, but then I kind of came back around and now I'm kind of a believer in original sin and, and that like inevitability of it. And for me, it just looks really different. It just looks like, the idea that when we started as beings, we were dependent on God and we believe that there was something greater than ourselves that was helping to like take care of the world and us and all that stuff. And then at some point pretty early on, I imagine, especially if I think about the garden of Eden story as like a myth that helps us understand some of our origin stories. It feels like there was this moment in which people saw death and that became like a real thing and 
freaked out and got scared. And so they started feeling like, oh, my God, now I need to, like, take care of myself to try to avoid this inevitable death thing, which started all kinds of things like greed and hoarding and Mm. taking of resources from other people in order to have to try to have as much as we possibly could to try to keep us and ourselves alive as long as possible. Eternal life is the answer to the end of sin. Ooh, that's, I mean, maybe so. I don't know. That would require some unpacking. Anyway, that's what I heard, kind of, but originals, so define what original sin is. I'm almost there. Okay. So when we turned away from God and this idea that if we cooperated, that God, there would be enough, that God would provide, basically, Mm -hmm. that the creation is enough for all of us to have what we need to be able to survive and thrive. Um. Then we started doing this like individualistic kind of, I got to take for me and mine. And sometimes that was individually, but probably that was more often like our group. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then there's some, had to be some division between what is my group and what is not, not my group. So that could be family units, that could be tribes, that could be colors of people's skin. I mean, pick what it, whatever that is. And that over time, each generation inherited that panic response basically that fear of death and need to try to take care of ourselves um and therefore like take as many resources as we could um and then over time we start developing that hierarchy mm-hmm. can combine with things like systems of power and domination so things like racism things mm. like imperialism things like capitalism right and mm-hmm. so when we talk about when i think about And talk with Christians who have a deep understanding and belief about original sin. Mm -hmm. I like to talk through the idea of what does it mean if what we inherit is actually systems of injustice, systems of oppression and marginalization. Because it is true right now, at least in, in my context, that I could not be born into the world and not be complicit with systems of oppression and Mm -hmm. still survive. You know, we live in houses which are part of a capitalist system, which are part of a global economy, which take advantage of the poor and take advantage of people in the global south. If I eat food, I'm part of a food system that is generally really harmful to the earth. Mm -hmm. If I, you know, like there is no way to get outside of those systems of domination or oppression. And we're born into it. And we start from before we even have consent, consuming, um, the byproducts of those inherited privileges or oppressions, right? So we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yes, and it is inevitable. And therefore, what salvation looks like, what we push back against, what we struggle for for our salvation is recognizing that those systems are in place and that they are inescapable. And therefore, we have to actually do the work of deconstructing them, pushing back against them, resisting them actively. And and is through knowing that, and through doing that work that I think that we find grace and mercy from our creator by recognizing the worth of others and, and living against, when I think about people of faith, I think about people living against the very tangible and real fear that death is inevitable and that, and it's pushing back against the idea that we have to compete with each other for enough rather than going on faith and belief that if we are cooperative and help each other and live as simply as we can, that we can actually all have enough and all make it because we believe in something bigger than ourselves, that collectively we are capable of more depending on and believing in a creator that wants our abundant wholeness 
as people, mm-hmm. as individuals, as communities, as a planet, than we do living out of a fear response of not having enough or death or needing to hoard for ourselves. I like that you get a smile when you start talking about some of this stuff. <laughs> I love it. It feels like the good news. Yeah. So does that mean that justice is worship? Or Hell yes. That, um, yes. Put, like basically swimming against the grain. I think about the number of queer people for centuries who if they had been completely out and honest about who they were as queer people that would mean jail that would mean physical assault or death still means death in a lot of places in the world Mm -hmm. so is it is it like is it immoral for people to lie about their sexual orientation when being honest about their sexual orientation could mean jail time could mean death could mean extraction from their entire communities you're not going to convince me that God is shaming uh, queer people in places where it is absolutely a matter of life and death for them to remain in the closet or for them to lie about that. I just don't believe it. Yeah. When um, I spent so many years of my life writing and learning about writing and I went to a writer's workshop um in San Francisco and you know in those workshops the ones where you're it's like really intense for like a week and you're living and eating with these people and also reading uh, their most intimate materials right you really uh foster a bond with with them that sometimes lasts years and years and years after um and one of the people that I still kind of keep in touch with today um told us right off the bat that you know she had a child and um we were all much younger she also told us that she was a sex worker um and back then i had so many more uh hang-ups about sex than i do now but um we all know that sex work is still illegal everywhere except for las vegas and where is the sin, though? Is the sin in her heart or in the action? Like where? I mean, I think that some people would say, oh, I want to save her soul, because mm-hmm. if I saved her soul, she would not want to do that. <laughs> um, and some people say, well, the act of what she's doing is is where she's sinning, you know? Some people say the exchange of money is where she's sinning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you look at it from from her end... She's taking care of her child and she's able to leverage and sell something that she has and that she's not connected to the way that, that you know, you or I may be connected to our sexuality in a very spiritual way. And that's just not the thing that that pulls her closer to God is like her sexuality. So she's able to, to sell it. I think it's that collective sin that some of us have incredibly different opportunities and chances of success in our particular social economic system than other people right and so when given I love what you said around like she was doing what she could with what she had access to right and so like I think that a lot of us learn from our families and from culture that you like maximize what you're good at and what you know Mm -hmm. and I think that that is like 
something that is lauded and applauded when someone has particular music talent or when someone's really good at math or whatever, whatever. But we don't often talk about like, what do people with less access to resources, with less access to education, with less access to like support, to be able to go back to school, to learn another skill after you've had a child, um, especially people who are queer, especially people who are gender nonconforming, especially women, like what, who still make less than men uh, for the same kind of work. And so the question of like, our collective sin is like what puts people in a position like the question before is sex work a sin is what are the circumstances under which people choose or feel like they need to choose sex work as their primary work now as somebody who knows and loves lots of working class people who choose to do sex work because it is absolutely the way that they get um, their needs met in this particular society like I don't have any there are zero feelings in my heart around whether or not that's a sin. I feel very, very clear that this particular system of marginalization who tells working class people and poor people that our bodies are not worth anything, that they can be worked to death, whether that's on a factory floor or in a bed, that we can work incredibly long hours without things like vacation pay, without things like um, any kind of security for our work that doesn't offer health insurance. I mean, just all these things and, 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 and that we as a collective body have said, these kinds of bodies are not worth caring for in the same ways, either with good food, either with reasonable vacation time, maternity leave, child support, whatever that is. And so I don't, I actually don't have much patience for people who are trying to talk about like, individual sin particularly around things like sex work without talking about the structure of power in which we live where some people have a whole shit ton of opportunities a number of like rich kids who get to fuck up over and over and over again and get off and get off and get off in the eyes of the law in the eyes of the church and whatever and then get to reclaim that they are washed whiter than snow and go out into the world and live their whole lives Uh compared to the number of people Brown people, working class people, queer people, poor people who have one mistake and they are like fucked for the rest of their life. Like until we can get to that place, Mm. I don't really actually have much patience for people who want to come at me talking about my people and loved ones who do sex work are somehow sinful. I'm like, please, I don't want to talk about that. I don't know if you read stories on the site uh, Sugar Butch. Nah. Uh, it's lovely. There's lots of people, queer people who contribute to that particular site. And, um, there's a lot of power play and BDSM and kink stuff that's also on that site. But I really think that it's a great, that's some of the best places I have gone to for my smut as someone who identifies as femme. Smut. (laughs) Yes. Who identifies as femme and loves that kind of stuff. Um, particularly in the butch femme dynamic or femme femme dynamic um i love that place the crash pad series i feel like Mm -hmm. is often lifted up in queer communities and more and more there are those examples so i feel like it's super big and i always want to put the power analysis there and i also want to give people a lot of agency and like grace around how they choose to use their own bodies and what feels true and right for them um because sex and pleasure are really important pieces of who we are as human beings. Mm, snaps to that.
And that's our show! <sighs> if you have comments about the show or questions you want to ask RevSex, call and leave us a voicemail message and we will do our best to answer it on the show. The number is 267-388-0789. And if that was too fast for you to catch it, please hit reply and go check it out on the website at crystalchino.com. Okay, bye!